Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true God in the springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Command and teach these things. Do not let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Fight the good fight of the faith. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Grace be with you all. to see everybody out. I'm going to talk to the online people just for a second, all right? Let me encourage you, if you're out and about and doing a lot of other things in the community, I encourage you to come join us. We're spreading our seats six feet apart. We're doing a good job of not being in each other's faces. And so if you're comfortable being out at restaurants and those things, you're going to be very, very comfortable here at, the, at church service. So I encourage you to, to do that and not just stay home. It's so easy to get comfortable uh, at home and you know, get up and watch on our own schedule and in our pajamas and with our cup of coffee there. And that's, that's really, really convenient. But church is more than just convenience. Church is about our body, each other, encouragement. And so don't fall into the habit of making church on demand like we do everything else. Let's make sure that we uh, understand what church is about. And that's what the whole book of First Timothy and Second Timothy is about. It's about the church. It's about community. It's about uh, God speaking through Timothy, the pastor, to the church body. And so if one of the deacons would flip the light on for me as well uh, out there, that'd be, that'd be helpful too, so you can turn in your Bible to 1 Timothy. 1 T Timothy, I'm getting a little bit of ring back here. Also, read if you could uh, see if you could do something about that. That's, that's great. In the Roman army, believe it or not, in the Roman army, if a, if a soldier who was on duty fell asleep at their guard post, they were put to death. If they were, I think, listen real carefully, guys. I think we have some, do y'all hear music playing? Okay, there, it's gone. All right, cool. Um, it, it, if, the, if the guard fell asleep at their post, they would be put to death. That's how serious it was when somebody was guarding, um, a soldier was, was to stay alert, stay awake, be uh, fully, fully engaged in what he were doing. Well, part of uh, my brother's job when he was in Washington State with the Marines was he was part of the security forces that were in charge of guarding a nuclear submarine base uh, there. And obviously, talking to him, 99.999% of the time, nothing happened, all right? Which is a good thing, right? Nothing happened. Boring, routine guarding of a nuclear base. But you understood that that 1%, 0.001% of the time when something 
potentially could happen when there was potentially a breach into the, the, the base. How catastrophic the results could have been. And so, therefore, you had to stay fully alert, fully awake, always, always on guard. And that's what Paul is going to get across to Timothy in First and Second Timothy. He's going to get across to young Pastor Timothy the fact that they will constantly, the church, be attacked by those who want to expose them through false teaching, take advantage of them through teaching things that weren't given by the, through the apostles to the church to follow the, ultimately the commands of Jesus Christ. And so the top priority for Timothy and the top priority for our pastors, our elders, is to guard the truth, to guard the truth. There's nothing more important than guarding the truth. And this is what's so sad is that a statistic which really validates my experience at many years as a youth pastor and even as a pastor is 60% of Christians believe that they would, if they do enough good works, they will get to heaven. If God will accept them in, if they do good works in this life, they will get into heaven. And I say that's backed up by experiences because over the years, especially as a youth pastor, working in a Christian school, I would ask kids, how does God save you? And so many times, kids who have heard the gospel again and again and again would respond, well, you know, if I do good, if I, if I do good stuff, if I do right. And this is not because they weren't hearing the gospel. It was because they were blinded, as Scripture says, Satan blinds the minds of those so they don't believe the gospel. They don't hear the gospel. They don't understand the simple gospel of grace, which is Jesus did it all. We rest in that. And as a result of a changed life, then we do good deeds and do good works. But we don't do that to earn. We should know that. Everybody should fully grasp that. But we can say that again and again and again. And Satan wants to destroy that central truth and not allow us to believe that truth. And Jesus made it plain in Scripture that because of our belief in the truth, because of our holding to the truth, that people were going to hate us. People would despise his disciples. Jesus made that clear. And I'm afraid that's what happened is, and I read this incredible quote by D.A. Carson that said, one generation believes a truth, the next generation assumes a truth, and the third generation denies a truth. One generation believes the truth, the next generation just assumes it, we know it's true, we don't really have to preach the main stuff, we don't have to really study the main stuff, we just, uh, we just know this stuff, but by the time you get to the third generation, it's gone. And I'm afraid that's where we're at in our society is we're on the edge of the second generation going into the third generation. Because I think we as the church have not guarded the truth and held to the truth and preached the truth like we should. And we've fallen into, and I say we, I've been guilty of this over my time before as well, by caring too much about what people think and being cool, being accepted, being liked rather than preaching the truth and giving the truth unapologetically. And there's a danger when we do that. When we begin to see the gospel as something that can be popular or accepted by the masses, and we begin to conform our message for that regard, what happens is we begin to assume a truth, and eventually we lose a generation. And I think what we can learn so well from Timothy is the fact that we have to hold to the truth and teach our children that not only are you going to be unpopular if you follow Jesus, 
but people are going to despise you. They're going to reject you for holding to the truth of Jesus. And the consequences could be super severe to you and to your family. The first generation of Christians fully understood that. They understood if they followed Christ, they would be ostracized by their community, lose their job, lose their families, extended families. But see, we haven't told that Christianity, we haven't taught that, that following Jesus could result in those consequences. We've taught a gospel which is for the masses. Come, hang out, be part of us, and then we'll kind of backdoor you with the truth, maybe at some point. I would encourage you as parents, it starts with you, that you have to be diligent to guard and protect and teach the truth. If you're not doing that, you can't rely upon the church or a Christian school or vacation Bible school. You can't rely upon those things in order to instill this in your children. It's got to be your job, your responsibility to do this. And so we have to entrust the truth to the next generation. And we have to work diligently. We have to be intentional to do those things. Because we have a tendency, as Scripture says, to find teachers, people that want to talk to us and tell us what we want to hear. The word that is used is itching ears to to tell us what we want to hear. And we surround ourselves with people who say the same things that we want. And we find ourselves in chaos, as Charles mentioned today, in, in this world because we have done that as a church. I think we as a church, the church as a whole, the universal church, has surrounded ourselves with teachers and we have itching ears just wanting to hear what we want to hear and we just want things to be on our terms and we're, we're scared of being politically incorrect. We're scared of being persecuted for righteousness sake. One of the Beatitudes. And so what are you teaching your children? I love this quote by Pastor Kevin DeYoung. He said, There is almost nothing more important than instructing our children in the faith, developing their moral framework, and preparing them to be deeply compassionate lovers of God and lovers of people and relentlessly biblical lovers of truth. Biblically, we're committed to truth at home, at church, in our lives. So Paul is going to tell in this book of 1 Timothy, he's going to tell his protege Timothy and us that the the church, if we faithfully guard and teach the the truth, the result will be genuine faith and real practical love. The church will fulfill its mission to make disciples and glorify God. But once we stray from the truth or water down the truth, the repercussions will last for generation after generation. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of, our, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which 
they make confident assertions. Let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father God, we thank you that we do have the truth. And Jesus, you are the truth. And God, we know that we as a universal church have relied upon methods and strategic planning and market research over the proclamation of you are Lord Jesus. And you're calling people to yourselves. And you're calling us to live holy and godly lives in this generation that doesn't want anything to do with that. And God, I pray right on the onset that you will help parents here to commit to be faithful to discipling their children, to passing on their faith to the next generation, God. We, we don't want to lose this generation. And God, help us to be diligent and not rely upon the church. Help us to see the church is coming to assist them, but not rely on us as exclusively the only place where they get truth. Help them to be diligent to give truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Just from the opening verse, you see that this is a letter from the Apostle Paul to Timothy, says his true child in the faith. And, it, and Paul says, I'm an apostle. Now, there's room for this word apostle to be referred to anyone who kind of goes out with the gospel, who takes the gospel out. They could be called an apostle in Scripture. But an apostle of Christ Jesus was a special class of apostles reserved for those who were sent out not by the church, but by Jesus himself. And so Paul's putting himself in a very elite, special category here with the 11 disciples and Matthias, who was possibly who was ushered in as, as the 12th. And then, no doubt in my mind, Paul was the final disciple of Christ Jesus, as he says in this passage. It's interesting, just on a side note, as I was studying, Paul always says a, 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 an apostle of Christ Jesus. All the other disciples say a disciple, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And Paul says it just the opposite. Why does he do that? Because the other disciples, the apostles, they knew Jesus first as Jesus, right? Jesus, who then they realized he was the Christ, the Messiah. Paul, on the road to Damascus, he saw Jesus as Christ. He knew that this teaching was Christ and then Christ Jesus. So I thought that was interesting as I was studying that out as extra for you today. But he says that he's a, an eyewitness. He's an apostle. Had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. And so Paul was not only an eyewitness of Jesus on the road to Damascus when Jesus called him, but he also had two other opportunities where Jesus called him up in a vision and taught him the things that he needed to know. So he was fully qualified. He met the qualifications of being a true apostle of Christ Jesus or of Jesus Christ. And that's important because the scriptures that you have come straight from the apostles or from those who sat right underneath of the apostles. And so we don't just have Scripture, the Bible, in front of you that kind of arrived over quite a few centuries over various people in the churches who was writing this stuff, but this came ex directly from the apostles who got it from Jesus himself. And so it has authority. And that's what the point that Paul's making here. He's, he's, he's saying, I have authority, look at verse 1, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Timothy knows this. Timothy knows that Paul is an apostle. He understands his authority. So why is Paul speaking to Timothy with, with such a, a manner in this way? Because it's critical as Timothy is pastoring this church at Ephesus that he recognize, that they recognize that 
he is accountable to Paul and they are accountable to him. That there is a chain of command here that Paul received his message from Jesus Christ. Timothy received his message from Paul. And then, Paul has a, and, from, and then Timothy has the authority to pass it on to the church there at Ephesus. And so he wants Timothy to be confident in this, in, in giving the truth. Don't make apologies. Give the truth. Fight the false teachers with the truth. And then verse 2, to Timothy, he says, he calls him my true child in the faith. And this expression most certainly implies this very close relationship. But I think so much more than that, I think that this points to the fact that Timothy was led to Christ by Paul. And he was converted as a result of Paul's preaching. I'll talk more about that in a second. And he says he's the true child. And it points to Timothy's his faithfulness over time, his genuineness over time. He's the real deal. Time has shown that he can be fully trusted with giving the gospel because he's truly received the gospel. And so Timothy grew up in this town called Lystra, modern-day Turkey, and he's the son of a Gentile father and a Jewish mother. We learn from Scripture that his mother and his grandmother taught him the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures, but most likely he didn't know Jesus was the promised Messiah, the one who came that was predicted and prophesied in the Old Testament until Paul's missionary journey when he came to Lystra, found in Acts 14.6. And at that point, more than likely, Timothy put his faith in Jesus. And after Paul left, Timothy continued to grow in the faith. He began to, to take ownership of his faith. And in fact, he was well-respected in the area. P churches around this area respected Timothy. And so when Paul came through again in a few years, he saw that Timothy was going to be a huge asset, so Paul invited him to be part of his team to go out and serve the churches and scatter the churches that were scattered all throughout Asia Minor and were going to serve and minister and disciple people in those, those, those churches. So uh, he had the opportunity to travel with Paul for five or six years, maybe seven up to seven years. And then Paul eventually leaves Timothy in this town of Ephesus to take charge of the church there. And he leaves in this church, it's, it's a mess. All right, it's chaos. There's a mess going on. Paul can't stay. He leaves Timothy. Timothy's fully ready to do what needs to be done. And then verses three and four give us a taste of all this disruption that's going on in the church. These false teachers, these pointless discussions that are happening. And we won't make a lot of commentary about three and four today. We're going to come back to this next week along with some additional verses. But let me just read that again. So as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, he says to Timothy, remain there in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to these myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And so we'll tackle those next week. But what Paul's doing in this letter, he's telling Timothy what a biblical church should look like. He's going to lay out, here's what needs to happen in this church. And Paul's writing this letter after he's gone away. He's writing this letter, and he's going to tell him, here's what a church should look like. And, and he's going to give him very practical tools, and we're going to see this. Very, very practical teaching to help organize and structure the church. And maybe you think about this. You think, what is the church? Like, what, what's the church? What's a definition of a church? I ran across this definition a few years ago in a book called Vintage Church by Mark Driscoll. And I, and I just, it's one of the best thorough definitions I've found. And let me just read this. It says, a church is a loving community of believers who confess Jesus as Lord. They organize under qualified leadership, 
And that's important. Timothy's going to talk about that. He's going to show how this leadership be, should be organized. They gather regularly for preaching and worship. They observe the biblical sacraments of baptism and communion, are unified by the Spirit, are disciplined for holiness, and then they scatter to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission. The great commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. The great commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel. They scatter from this place, from meeting together as missionaries to the world for God's glory and for their joy. That's what a real church looks like. That's the definition throughout the New Testament, and we're going to see a lot of this in Timothy. This is what a church should look like. And that's what Paul has told Timothy. You need to confront some people. You need to do some things, change some things up, train some people up, so that church can function the way that it's intended to function, so people can be discipled, can go out into their community, into their city, and share Christ to make disciples themselves. Remember the, the graph we showed last week and the week before? Of, of Every disciple should be a disciple maker. And so you're sent out equipped to be able to do that. And so let's put it real personal here for a second, okay? If you're sitting here and you say, well, I have no like, idea how to make a disciple, then either you're not paying attention or we're not doing our job, or maybe a combination of both. You should be growing in your understanding of the Word through your own personal study, through the equipping by preaching the Gospel, preaching the Word, and also through relationships within this body that you get to the point where you can also be making disciples. And you can do that through children's ministry at a loose-knit level each week. You can do that by personal discipleship, taking people under your wing and teaching them, meeting with them on a regular basis. You can do it in a small group. It could be an outworking of your K-group. But all of us are commissioned to do that. That's what a church is about. And so we're equipped to go and to scatter. And so verse 5 really is the key verse for this entire book. It's the key verse. Here is Paul, what he says straight out. Here's my aim, here's my goal for not only this church in Ephesus, but God's aim for every local church. Look at this, verse 5. The aim of our charge, Paul says, the aim of, of this message I'm giving to you, I'm writing to you, Timothy, is love. And where does that love come from? That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Here's the goal, Timothy. Here's the aim, Timothy. It's love. A church that's about love. And where does that come from? He explains exactly where that comes from. So reverse the structure there for a second of the verse. If you want to see truth displayed in a church, follow the love. If you want to see what a real church looks like, follow the love. If you want to see what a genuine believer looks like, follow the love. Because the love, a person who expresses true love, I'm not talking about a sentimental, mushy-gushy kind of uh, emotional expression here. We're talking about love that's sacrificial, love that gives, love looks out for the benefit of other people. If you want to see what a true believer, a real believer who's tracking with God, what a real church should look like, follow the love. If love is happening, then there's something that's being done right there. Something happening which is right, because true love is evidence that church members are rooted in God's truth. So follow the logic. Paul says, 
I'm authoritative. I'm giving this word. This is from Jesus Christ. I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus, okay? I'm giving you this truth. And if you live by this truth, if you take this truth in, then the outworking of that is love. And you see, love is built upon truth. Love is built upon truth. If you don't have truth, you don't have true love. And so the love isn't mustered up or conjured up or effort. I gotta, I gotta love people, I gotta do this. But the word of truth is given, there's a change in the individual, and the result is love. And look what he says as he, as he breaks this down. He says, it issues from a pure heart. That's what the gospel does. It gives us a pure heart as opposed to one that's filled with sinful desires. And so when you take the gospel in, when you believe the truth, when you rest in the truth, instead of, let's make it practical, when your mind is consumed with selfish, sinful passions, what's in it for me type attitude, when it's consumed with that, it's not a pure heart. And the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, right? For they will see God. If you want to see God, your heart must be pure. And in a pure heart, what are you thinking about? What are you dwelling on? What does your mind go when there's nothing else to think about? That's a way to check your heart and see what am I, what, what matters to me? What's important to me? So this love, it issues from a pure heart. Truth speaks to the heart, and the heart recognizes truth. And here's God, what God says. And so I adjust my life so that I can be in the truth. And he says, a good conscience, as opposed to one that's guilt-ridden. And how does a good conscience, where does that come from? It comes from scriptures like Romans 8. One, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't have to be burdened down with guilt because Jesus has set me free from the penalty of sin. And so I can have a pure conscience. Yes, we fail. Yes, we sin. But 1 John 1, 9 again, Charles, it wasn't a sermon, all right? It wasn't a sermon, but it's sure a lot of good stuff there. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so we make adjustments so that we have, we're, we're banking our lives, we're building our lives on what gives us a good conscience, which is who we are in Jesus Christ. Not what my spouse tells me or what the world tells me or what TV tells me. It's on what Jesus tells me. And I believe that I trust it. So a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith as opposed to hypocrisy. I go to church. I'm a pretty good person. 80% of this town doesn't go to church. I'm in church. I'm, I'm, I'm doing pretty good, right? Well, that doesn't make you a sincere believer. A sincere faith is one that's authentic. It's real. You truly love Jesus. And it doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you fully understand and comprehend what that means. Just like we talked about in the sanctification series, you're on a trajectory to be more and more like Jesus. And maybe you're down here. You've got a long way to go. But you're going toward Jesus. And sincere faith, you're not just faking it. You're just not going through the motions. But you have these false teachers. Look at verse 6. But certain persons within the congregation, many of these church members, they've, by swerving from these, what's these? The good conscience, sincere faith, a pure heart, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions. 
So what you have here, you have people who have rejected the truth and they're consumed with these agendas that really aren't gospel-centered at all. In fact, not only are they not gospel-centered and Jesus-centered, but they're stirring up conflict within the body and the result is there's no love. So Scripture makes it crystal clear. Those people who reject truth can be identified by their lack of love, and they want to stir up problems. They want to bring discord into the body. They want to create controversy. They want to major on the minors. And what happens is, it's easy to identify. There's no desire. Love, what does love do? Love pursues. Read 1 Corinthians 13. What does love do? It doesn't give up. But when you're rejecting truth, then you're looking for opportunities to gossip, to complain, to pick fights and battle. That's what the rejection of truth does. So follow the love, right? Follow the love. Look around. You want to know who needs to be discipling you? Follow the love. Don't pick the person who has all the head knowledge. They can say all the right things. They know all the right theology, but they're just not very loving person at all. They're, in fact, they're a very unloving person. That's not who you need to be discipling you and spending time with you and building into your life. You need the person who's sacrificial, the person who's giving, the person who opens their life with great hospitality to you. Those are the people to seek out. Because I'm afraid that we've made being a disciple all this about knowledge, but what does Scripture say? We speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. And if you speak the truth and there's no love, then I will question your agenda based upon the Scriptures. I will question whether you really know truth at all or you're falling away from truth. You speak the truth in love. Love is doing what's best for the other person. That's love. So where are you at in this conversation? Follow the love. Follow the love. If, if churches like, got to get out of here. How much longer do we have? Let me ask you, is that, is, is, is that love? Or we, we follow the love there. What does it say about your life? Maybe it shows that, you know, it's not a pure heart, a sincere and, and clear conscience, but it's hypocrisy. If it's no eagerness to be in God's word, follow the love. There's no love for Jesus. Either you're extremely immature in your faith and lacking, or possibly you should entertain the fact that maybe you don't know Jesus at all. So what do we do with this? Head, heart, and hands. Head, guard the truth. Guard the truth. And guarding the truth doesn't mean I'm just holding on to it for myself, but it means, as we'll see throughout this book, it means passing it on. Sharing it with your kids. And, you, and, and some of you are thinking, I just don't know enough to share it with my kids. I'm afraid I'll mess them up. I'm afraid I'll, I'll tell them something that's wrong. Look, if you're in the Bible, if you're in the Word, and there are so many resources out there, great resources that I'd be more than happy to recommend to you that can steer you in the right direction. Do something. Please, do something before we lose a generation. And then the heart. Don't pursue love. Pursue Jesus. You want a heart change? 
Don't pursue, I gotta love better, I gotta give better more, I gotta like invest in people's life. I gotta do this, I gotta do this, I gotta do this. And all you're focused on is the doing, you're gonna fail, you're gonna burn out, you're gonna quit. You focus upon Jesus and the love will come. The love will flow. So don't pursue love, pursue Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And then hands, speak the truth in love, build gospel-centered community in your K group, speak love to each other, encourage each other, sharpen each other, build each other up. And that's what's so awesome about K groups is in, in, a, in a group this size, it's easy to come in, leave, not really intersect and, and deal with a lot of people personally. It's, hey, how are you? Good, how are you? See you, see you next week. But in K group, community, there's a chance to really do life on life together. And I say chance because it's still intentional. You can still just go to K group, shake hands, eat a meal, and, and head out the door, and nothing really changes. You must be intentional. And you speak the truth in love. And it's tough to be involved in somebody's life that you don't really know. I mean, some people want to speak the truth. They're good at speaking the truth, but they have no desire to really love a person and sacrifice for that person. Speak the truth in love. Guard the truth. Pursue Jesus. Speak the truth in love. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We build our church. We build our lives. We build our hopes. We build our families upon him and him alone. God, this world, just like in Timothy's day, is crazy. There's so much chaos. God, help us to not get caught up in pointless conversations and wranglings and fightings over stuff that doesn't really even matter eternally. God, help us to care about what really matters most. And that's you, the gospel, following the risen Jesus and loving the truth so much that we impart it to the next generation, God. I pray you'll teach us practically what that looks like in our homes and our families. Help our hearts to be bent toward you in every area of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.